we're taught to do order of magnitude thinking. And we're taught to try to make, so part of that is about making kind of estimates of what's gonna work, but I think part of it is also thinking about where it's worth putting time and attention. And I think, you know, as the technology is gonna change, the detailed skills are gonna change, but that kind of big picture thinking about what's the biggest, what's the biggest uncertainty in this problem? Or what's holding us back from solving this problem and how do we address it? And I'm not gonna worry about getting it accurate to, you know, 10% because no one cares. What we need is like, if I can get it within a factor of two, like that's, that's the first stage, right? And we all do that almost instinctively by the time we've, you know, been trained as astronomers. But that's actually, because technical people often are very detail oriented, a lot of technical people don't think that way. And I think that's a sort of ex-astronomer superpower that we have. Welcome to the Astronomers Turn Data Scientist podcast. I'm Joseph Ahern, one of the co-hosts, and I've been a data scientist for about a year and a half. And I'm Jeff Silverman, one of the other co-hosts, and I've been a data scientist for seven years now. Our guest today is Genevieve Graves. Welcome, Genevieve. Thank you. It's great to be here. So just to start off, do you want to give like a brief version of your origin story, your astronomy research and transition to, to data science? Yeah, sure. So I, I finished a PhD in astronomy in 2009, graduated from UC Santa Cruz. And as an astronomy graduate student and then a postdoc, I was working on galaxy evolution. In particular, I was working on spectroscopic surveys, so using Sloan Digital Sky Survey and some other kinds of survey data to look at very large populations of galaxies and characterize the star formation histories of early type galaxies. I, what that meant was that in some ways I was doing sort of large population data science and data analytics of a sort, studying galaxies, you know, even before sort of data science was a term that I had, had heard of, but I was sort of doing these sort of large scale statistical modeling um, of large, I'm trying to map trends in populations of galaxies. Uh, so I was a postdoc at Berkeley as a Miller Fellow for three years, and then I was a postdoc at Princeton for about a year. And sort of shortly into my second postdoc, I just decided that I was done, that I wanted to do something else. There are a bunch of reasons that played into it. The largest one was just that I had sort of run out of fascination with distant galaxies. I felt like I knew what I needed to know about them. I could kind of see where the next decade of research was going to go. And in my subfield in particular, right, early type galaxies are the galaxies that changed the least in the, you know, in the last 10 billion years. So it wasn't that hard for me to sort of learn model in my head what, what, what those galaxies were going to look like at slightly higher redshift as surveys push deeper and deeper. And I just didn't feel like that was what I wanted to spend the next decade working on. But also I wanted the other, another big motivator was I just wanted, I sort of, I wanted to have control over where I lived, right? I got to a place where I was like, I know where I want to be and, and build a life there. And I didn't, and between, you know, my career, my husband's career, and the fact we had a kid, right? As I began my second postdoc, just being able to have that kind of determinism became important to us. So that was also a significant motivating factor. I... So I made this decision probably in 2013. I spent some time doing, at the time I was mostly programming at IDL, which it was clear to me was not going to be relevant outside of astronomy. I think the good news is now that a lot of astronomers are already working in Python, but that was a learning curve I had to go up. And I'd done a lot, little bit as an astronomer, but as I decided I wanted to make this transition, I really dug in on that and did a bunch of uh, online coursework. It was nice because I was a I was on a postdoctoral fellowship. I had a lot of uh, flexibility, so I was able to actually put some time into just, you know, taking code I'd already written and converting it into Python, doing sort of uh, online courses in Python, uh, uh, mostly focused on machine learning. So I was able to kind of do the background work I needed to do to feel competent making a transition. And the other thing that I did is I sort of activated my network at that time. So I started letting people know that I was leaving the field, which of course is really hard to do before you've made a firm decision. And one of the pieces of feedback I got from some of my mentors when I came to them finally saying like, I'm leaving, I'm going to be doing this job. And they said, well, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you talk to me earlier? To which the answer is of course, well, I couldn't, right? Because you were, you, if I stayed in the field, you were my letter writers. 
So I didn't feel until I had made the firm decision I was going to leave, I didn't feel, I felt like it would be undermining of their sense of my commitment to the field if I talked to them about the fact that I was very seriously considering leaving. I, but I sort of reached out to other graduate students that I, and postdocs that I had known who'd gone into data science. I had a couple of them who were already involved part-time part in other projects. And I was lucky enough that one of them was involved with a very early phase startup that sort of had ju was just raising money as I was looking to leave. And so they, I wound up joining a startup as employee number one, right as they raised their first pre-seed or seed money and coming into that. So I didn't actually do a formal job search at that point in time. And I actually have not done a formal job search since then. So I'm not a good person to ask about technical interviews because I have, I have given them to people as an employer, but I have never actually had to study and prepare for one myself. So I wound up joining a, a, a super early phase startup. It was in the field people analytics. So studying the sort of data science as applied to employee populations at companies and people and their career trajectories. Startup was called HiQ Labs. And we, over the, I was there for about three and a half years. And so during that time, we built up a technical team. We built a product. We raised a, you know, a formal seed round. We then raised a series A round. At a certain point, I decided it was time to move on to something else. And the company has since imploded as many startups do. So that's sort of, we can talk about that as part of the startup experience. And then since then, that was in about 2017. And since then I have been doing consulting work. So I wound up setting up my own data science consulting firm. I did that in partnership with an engineer that I had met working at HiQ. So he's a data engineer. I'm a data scientist. Between the two of us, we were sort of, we're sort of a full, you know, early data team and we could, there's pretty much nothing data related we can't do. And so we started taking on contracts as a team. We, as, as our, as the number of clients we had grew, we also wound up pulling in a few other people, like more junior people to work on specific projects over time. And that was kind of ramping. And we were really getting, we were getting to the place where we, we had more work than we could handle, even with the people that we had. So, which is great because then you can, then you get to start firing the clients you don't want to work with anymore. Whereas in the early phases, you just have to say yes to every job. And so you have clients who where you're really not getting paid very well for the work you're doing, or you have clients who are just difficult or awful people like to deal with. So it's nice to get to the place where you then can pick and choose. And that's sort of where we were when COVID hit. And then we can sort of talk about how that evolved, maybe that's part later on, but just the very quick version is that I, my, I wound up needing to have more time and more flexibility to do homeschooling and sort of run household stuff as all of the sort of childcare infrastructure imploded and the schools closed and my husband wound up transitioning into a very high stress, high pressure job. So it was, I was the one who had to handle all the parenting stuff. Prior to that, he had been, you know, primary parent. And what that meant was I just basically stopped doing new business development. So I'm now at a place right now where I'm working probably about half time as a consultant. I'm very well paid for the time that I work. So it works out nicely. I have a, so my, my salary is basically in the low six figures working half time or sometimes less than half time. And I have a ton of flexibility with my work. So right now I'm a data science consultant. I have one primary client that is a venture capital firm. And it has been, it's worked. It's some combination of being relatively, sometimes interesting, sometimes not so interesting, very state, which is I think true of a lot of work. It's been very stable, which is not always true of consulting work. And it has been very flexible, which is often true of consulting work. And it has allowed me to kind of pilot my family through COVID and then settling out of the aftermath of that in a way that I think would have been much more difficult if I hadn't had that flexibility. So that's where I am now. That's great. Thanks. Lots of stuff to dig deeper into in there. I think the first thing I want to dig a little more into is, you know, a lot of folks listening and, and watching to listening to us and watching us are, you know, academics either thinking about making the transition or, you know, actively trying to get their first job in the tech industry, maybe applying to, you know, huge companies everybody's heard of, smaller companies, yep. tiny startups that, you know, some connection of theirs is starting, consulting. What do you see as sort of the, the biggest differences for, you know, 
what I consider an entry level data scientist coming from an academic background, you know, whether it's bachelor's or PhD or postdoc, what are the differences that they would be doing sort of, you know, day to day type of work and, and like, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe some of the work life balance stuff as well from those, you know, huge companies, tiny startup that's just getting seed money, maybe some of the consulting aspects as well, because those are all very different flavors of, yes. of yeah. things to do as a data scientist. Right. So the ones that I have direct personal experience with are working at a small startup um, because I did that for, for almost four years, like super, you know, going from a startup that was like three, you know, three people meeting once a week in a, you know, in some co-working space up to an, a company that was, you know, 35 employees with an actual office in San Francisco. So I sort of was, have been through those phases of startup. I have never worked at a large company, but my husband is a data science manager at Apple and I have a lot of friends, both ex-astronomers and other friends in tech who have worked at big companies. So I have a very close friend who's a, an engineer at, at Google and I have talked to many people who have done stints at Facebook or LinkedIn or you know, uh, you know, other large companies. So all of my information about large companies is secondhand, but I've, you know, I, can, I, I can tell you what I've seen of that and how it feels like it compares. And then obviously the consulting work. I think that, so let's come back to the consulting because it's a little different. But I think thinking about big company versus startup, I think both of those are things that people can do straight out of their education, right? You can, you can apply and get a first job, entry-level job at a startup. You can get an entry-level job at a big company. I think the interview processes are often quite different, right? So big companies typically have a very formalized somewhat rigid interview process that they have developed over the years and that they do it their way and each company is a little different but you especially if it's a very large company you can actually find out what the interview process is both by talking to people in your personal network or alumni groups from your academic programs who work at those places people often if you reach out are very willing to talk and you can also just find information on online forums. So if you're going to apply to a big company, it's worth finding. Just like you, you know, prepare for the SAT and you do practice tests and you take practice AP exams. Interviewing at a big company is like that. It's a, there's a, each company has a specific format of test. You want to know what that format is before you go in. You need to do prep work for that particular format. And it's a process that you should just commit to. And you know how to do this, right? I mean, if you are graduating from college or from a PhD program, you know how to prepare for a test, study for a test, go in and perform that way. And you should treat the interview process as that, as something that you need to formally prepare for. Startups are much more of a mixed bag. Some of them have a formalized process. Some of them, especially when they're really early, have a much more informal process. Um, some of it is all done through kind of personal networking. Right. So they don't even necessarily for the very earliest hires, they don't even necessarily have a formal interview process. It's more that they're just kind of scrambling to find anyone who they think can do the job. So I think that sort of. But I, in both cases, I would say, and I think this is sort of unfortunate because it's, it's biased and unfair in a lot of ways. Your, your, your personal network matters. Having people that you know, and you don't have to know them well, but being able to find and make a personal contact and use that as an entry point is actually very helpful in both of these processes. In startup, that's often how you even know the jobs and how people know you. And you're often working together in these very intense situations. So people who know something about who you are as a person often are more interested in working with you because they have a sense of like, okay, when everything, you know, when this shit really hits the wall, what is this person going to be like? when we're like trapped in a room trying to, you know, dig ourselves out of a hole over, you know, over a weekend. At big companies, network is not going to get you a job, but what it will, what's more likely to get you is an interview, right? So, you know, big famous companies like Google or Apple have so many applicants, they don't even necessarily look at all the applications that come in. I mean, they may have, you know, automated software that goes through screening for keywords, but if you can find someone that you have a connection with, whether you graduated from the same program or it's somebody you actually know, or it's somebody who knows somebody you know, and you can actually have a conversation with someone in the organization and make that connection, they can then put you forward. And that just makes it much more likely that your application will be looked at. After that initial process, like, I don't think it helps. You know, it, it's very much just based on the interview process. But 
even just getting an interview or even just having someone actually look at your resume is much more likely to happen if you're able to find someone to submit that. You know, I think that us tech people are used to thinking of business networking as like a thing that those businessy, salesy people, you know, extrovert people do. It's not, you know, we're tech, we're, we're tech people. We don't network, we don't business network, we don't schmooze. You know, we want our work to be judged for its own quality. But the truth is all of us have a network. We have people that we've met in programs that we've done, in meetup groups that we've been part of. And I think a lot of us as introverts feel kind of inhibited about reaching out to people, but it's really worth doing. And my experience on both sides of that has always been that people are often very generous with their time and very willing to talk about their experience, very willing to meet up for coffee in person or you know, just to have a Zoom call. So that if you reach out, you'll be surprised at how often people respond in a really positive way. I mean, that's a sort of, that's about kind of like the, the interview process, the actual job. I think one of the, the biggest difference between, well, there's a lot of differences. Um, one of the, I think the big difference that matters in terms of your day-to-day -day work experience between a startup and a big company is that um, at a big company, you will almost always be hired as a specialist. And where you really, what you're going to be doing is going somewhat narrow and deep on a particular topic and whatever it is, are the projects you're working on. Whereas at a startup, there's a lot, every, you know, you've got to cover all the bases with a very small number of people and you're often in a hurry to get things done. So you, the, the work tends to be more shallow and broad, right? So as a, as a start, as especially at an early startup employee, you're going to wear multiple hats. You're going to be pulled into you know, sales conversations, you're going to be pulled into product, you know, product development conversations, customer service conversations, you are going to have to kind of be willing to participate in many different aspects of the business. And often you're not going to necessarily, unless you were like hired to be the data scientist who's doing the absolute core work like if the company is actually their main product is data science and you're doing the core work on that, unless that's true, you're almost certainly going to be doing relatively kind of, you're not going to be doing the most sophisticated data science and modeling. You're going to be doing a lot of kind of quick and dirty, like what can we do that's going to get the 80% correct answer in two weeks? And then we'll worry about, you know, making it better later, maybe if we have time, if it even matters for the product, because a lot of the time it doesn't actually even matter that much. So if you are someone who did a PhD because you love going like super deep and becoming a real expert in some core thing, and what you really love is that really chewy intellectual technical work, you're more likely to find that at a big company because you're going to get to be this sort of specialized narrow expert. At a startup, you will rarely be given the time. Uh, I mean, the company won't have the time to go super deep and get something really, really right in the way that you're trying to do when you're a scientist. You want to get it really right. Startups, you're not going to be, you don't, they don't have the time to do that. They're not going to give you the time to do that. So if you love that like super chewy, deep technical work, it's harder to find that at a startup. But on the other hand, you get to be part of a little bit part of everything. So you get to see across the entire business. And that's fascinating because you get to understand things about how a business runs and how products get designed and how you and iterate you know, with, with customers directly. You know, as, as a technical person at a big company, you're not gonna talk to customers ever. So you're not really gonna know, hear from the people who are using your product and then think about what you would need to do and like what data science you would need to do to make it better. Whereas a startup, you're, you're very likely to be in that loop. So they're, they're pretty different. I mean, I loved the experience of being at a small startup and getting to have my fingers a little bit in everything. And that was really, that was fascinating to me and something that I both enjoyed and discovered I was really good at. But it also, you know, I also have not most, you know, deep, chewy, gritty technical work of the data scientists that I know. Um, and I think it, largely because that has been mostly happening at large companies. The, I mean, the other big dis difference, and maybe we will come back to this later, is compensation. The compensation landscape is pretty different at these places. Big companies typically can pay somewhat more for salaries, although startups often are forced to be somewhat competitive. But the huge difference that I've seen is that at a startup, what you get are stock options. And at a big company, what you get are 
reserve stock units, RSUs. And the main difference is that RSUs are actually worth something because it's a publicly traded company. And so that stock can be sold, right? There's It's liquid and it has value. And at a startup, what you're really getting is a, an illiquid lottery ticket, which often is worth, winds up being worth nothing. And if, even if it is worth something, um, the fact that it's illiquid, that you can't just sell it when you want to sell it, you have to wait either for the company to be sold or go public or some what, what's called a liquidity event, um, winds up having a pretty substantial impact on whether or not you can cash out, whether or not you actually can leave the job and still hold on to the opportunity to exercise your stock options. And that's a pretty complicated landscape. So, I mean, in, in my personal experience of my startup life and the various things I've been involved with and then watching my husband with his job at Apple, there is no question that his Apple RSUs have been enormously more valuable than any of the stock options that I have gotten from any of the small companies I've been part of. So that, that sort of that, that compensation landscape is also different between those two. Consulting work is its own, is a, is a different beast yet again. It's so starting, going out as an independent consultant or starting your own consulting business straight out of school, I think would be very difficult to do. And it's not something that I would ne necessarily recommend, mostly because a huge part of being an independent consultant or running a consulting business is business development. It's actually finding work, finding projects, finding clients. And to do that, you need to have a professional business network, which I certainly did not have coming out of being a postdoc. And you typically don't have a network, a big network in the professional world coming straight out of academia. It takes time to build that. You could certainly join a consulting firm as a consultant and build up experience that way. And I, you know, I, I think that and we'll talk about what consulting work is actually like, and there's reasons why that's very interesting to do. But I would, I don't think I would have been able to start out like running my own consulting work straight out of my postdoc. And most of my clients, a very, a lot, you know, a large fraction of my clients and the best clients I've had have been people who came out of business contacts that I made while I was working at the startup. Not even necessarily close business contact, but just being in that world, meeting a whole bunch of people gave me this sort of large business network to tap into. And that is where a large fraction of the projects have come from. Consulting work, so, so I think that's hard to do if you try like starting out. Um, you could certainly join a consulting firm and there's a lot of data science and AI consulting firms out there. And I think that could be a very interesting path as well. So what characterizes consulting work is it usually it's project-based and you're focused on a project and every three months or six months, the projects change, right? So often you'll be, you know, and sometimes, sometimes projects go for, you know, a, a year or even several years, um, but often they're quite a bit shorter than that. And that ha again, has sort of positives and negatives. It means that you're never sort of stuck doing the same thing over and over and over again, because you're going to wind up working on different projects with different clients. And there's a little bit of like, if you, you know, something you hate about your current job, you know, it's okay because it's going to change within a few months. That said that it, you know, there is, there are, there's always sort of costs to churn and starting a new project, you have to go up a learning curve. So again, that can be, that's good in some ways, because you learn new things and you have to learn new technologies or learn new processes or learn about new business domains as you move from project to project. And that learning is very interesting, but it also means, you know, it also, it requires effort, right? To go up that learning curve repeatedly. And I think that that can, that can be you know, that it's, it's really just a question of, sort of what you want. There's like a, a, a slightly um, parallel path. I know at least one ex-astronomer who has a job at a big company. He works at Bosch, um, but he's basically an internal consultant. Bosch has this, in, this internal data science and machine learning consulting group that they then make available to the entire Bosch organization. So what this team does is they basically do separate data-driven or machine learning or data science projects around different parts of Bosch. So it has that same kind of consulting project, things are changing every few months, 
you know, like every three to six months, you're on a new project thing, but it has the stability of, I still work for the same company. I still have the same health insurance. I know what my paycheck is going to be six months, a year, three years from now. So if I sign up, you know, if I buy a house and sign a mortgage, I know what my, in, you know, like I, I can plan around a future income stream, which is hard, you know, as an independent consultant or as a consulting business owner, it's much more volatile, right? So long-term planning, financial planning, is just harder when your cash flow is much more uneven. Awesome. One of the things that maybe we could get into are for someone who is preparing for a career transition, what are some of the questions they can ask themselves to help figure mm -hmm. out what they want to do? Yeah, I sort of wish somebody had done this when I was both picking a career in the first place and going to graduate school and leaving graduate school. And then also when I was making the transition, I think it's really important to ask yourself the question, what do I actually like about my work? Like if I think about my work day or my work week, what are the hours of my day that I enjoyed the most? What was I doing? Why did I like them? And I think a lot of us kind of just keep marching forward on a path and we're like, yeah, I like this, but we don't do a lot of deep introspection about what it is that we enjoy, why we like it and which parts of it maybe we don't like. So for me personally, when I started thinking about this question of what do I actually like about my job? The realization I came to is that I am not a scientist. I'm an engineer. And I trained as a scientist, but I, in retrospect, probably should have trained as an engineer. And in my current life, I function much more like an engineer. And what I mean by that, the kind of core differentiator for me is that I don't care that much what kind of problem, what problem I'm working on, what question I'm trying to answer as long as the question is interesting and the process of answering it is engaging. So for me, it's all about the puzzles. It's like, I'll, you know, I'll do a crossword puzzle. I'll play board games. I like the, the, the constrained problem solving landscape of here is a question or here is a puzzle or here's a problem that somebody cares about. Now, what I want to do is figure out how to solve it. And that's an engineering mindset. I think to be a real, you know, often to be a great scientist, great scientists are passionate about specific questions. They have this thing that they're obsessed with that they want to know about the universe and how it works. And they're very driven by that sort of obsessive need to know the answer to this specific thing. And what I realized eventually was that I didn't care. That in fact, that what actually what I wanted, I liked the chewiness, I liked solving chewy problems. And for me, actually a big part of the validation payoff came from solving a problem and then having somebody care that the problem had been solved. And that was something that was actually mostly missing from science because I wasn't solving problems that were kind of impacting people's day-to-day -day lives or holding them back from doing things they wanted to do. I was solving problems that were sort of somewhat abstract about expanding human knowledge about galaxies in the distant past. And eventually it just, I felt like I sort of needed you know, as a graduate student, it was fine because I could solve a problem and then someone would really care. My thesis advisor would really care. So I would get that validation payoff of like, okay, yeah, I did it. Like here was this problem and I solved it. But as a postdoc where I had to pick my own research questions, I kind of lost that motivating threat. And I think from a sort of academic science perspective, people would be like, oh, okay, well, you just weren't very good at picking problems to work on, which is maybe entirely true. But the reason I wasn't good at picking good problems to work on is because I didn't fundamentally care about any of them. What I cared about was the problem solving aspect of it. And the fact that I was solving abstract problems that didn't have a lot of relevance in the day in the world and in the day people's day in the life turned out to actually be a big liability because my my engineering mindset is a desire to solve problems that people care about. My husband, ironically, you know, he's trained as an engineer. He, he his, his degree is in computer science and, and artificial intelligence. And he trained as an engineer and spent many years working as a software engineer, but he is not an engineer. He really hates working on problems that other people have defined. He actually isn't even really a scientist either though. He's an artist in the sense that what he loves is creating something new, like building things. So the part that he enjoys about software and writing code is that he's sort of creating this new thing that didn't exist before. But that's a very different impulse as well. You know, so I feel like there's the, this sort of artist, creator, inventor impulse. Like I want to create a new thing 
that's sometimes people who are trained as astronomers, that's the thing that motivates them is that creative invention process. For some people, it's the scientific thing. Like here, I get super excited about these deep questions. I want to understand the universe. It's really important to me to, to choose what I work on because I want to work on the questions I care about. And then there's this sort of engineering mindset of, I like solving puzzles. I want somebody to care about the puzzles I solve. So for me, when I was, I, I didn't even, I didn't even start thinking about this until I was 30, right? But that question, when I started thinking about well, what, like, what were the parts of my astronomy career I enjoyed? What were the parts where I felt lost or I just didn't care? Or I felt like I'm supposed to feel good about this, but I don't. And then why? And, that, and kind of doing that somewhat honest introspection of what do I actually, what actually validates me? What makes me feel good in a workday? What, what, what am I excited to engage with? What gets me up in the morning and, and, you know, excited to go into the office? And then what are the things that leave me totally cold? So I, and I think that that's something that, that people don't necessarily ask themselves enough. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And yeah, definitely the, like, that deeper introspection is something that I've heard from academics getting to, you know, a, a, an ending stage, you know, whether it's a bachelor's, master's, PhD, end of a postdoc, whatever, and saying like, yeah, I actually did stop and think about it. And what does get me up in the morning? And like, mm -hmm. there are aspects of astronomy, but maybe it's not astronomy specific, kind of like you were saying, solving puzzles, creating something new. Um, so something I've absolutely heard from uh, academics looking, considering a, a transitioning career. So I want to switch gears a little bit. We've been talking mostly about sort of early career and different types of roles and, mm -hmm. and, and your experiences. I want to look a little bit forward now. You mentioned that you're working pretty closely with a VC firm, venture capitalists, who, you know, as far as my semi-naive opinion is, you know, their their job is to make bets on the future at some level, yeah. right? Yeah. In investing uh, no, in that's, companies. that's and... correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, what what are you seeing them invest in? What do you think people should be, you know, excited about or interested about? Or what are people excited and interested? in and mm -hmm. about maybe those yeah. aren't the same things you right. know i think a lot of people have heard about ai llms chat sure. gpt yes. is that everything is that gonna flame out where, mm -hmm. where else should we be thinking so love yeah. to hear well, and, and, your, your and opinion and maybe the vc's opinions if those are different if we've, been, if we've been having this conversation two years ago instead of talking about ai we've been talking about crypto Yep. And yep. Uh, which, and you would get a very different answer from me. I've, I've got a bunch <laughs> of, uh, you know, monkey NFTs that, you know, are going to come back with my pogs and that's my retirement. Totally. Right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. So I, the, the venture I've met with a bunch of VCs, especially like as part of the startup that I was with, cause I was actually part of the fundraising process, which again, right. You start early phase startup, you get to do a lot of different things. Okay. Going into a bunch of VC meetings and meeting like thinking meeting enough of them to start thinking about how people on the other side of that table think about think about technology and early phase technology business fascinating you don't get that experience at at a big company you don't even get it at a, a late stage startup right because your chances are as a data scientist at a you know company that's already raised 50 million dollars they're not going to bring you into vc meetings um the vc and the vc firm that i'm currently working with i met as while i was at my super early phase startup because we pitched them and you know had a bunch of conversations with them. So that's how they knew about me. So this comes back to the, it's hard to build a consulting business and, uh, uh, on your own without having built a business network first, right? So my, they are something that came out of my business network from the work I did at the startup. Um, they are an early phase firm. So they make investment, their favorite time to invest in at the seed round. Um, so companies, when they're raising, you know, one to several million dollars, the firm I work for writes, you know, likes to write checks from about half a million to a few million dollars. And they will often, they will sometimes, they will often follow on at the series A. So if they invest in a company at seed stage, they'll then put more money in at series A. And sometimes they'll join with a new company at series A, but that's pretty rare. And they basically don't invest later stage than that. They manage funds of hundreds of millions of dollars, not billions and billions of dollars. And that's part of what drives this. But what all of that means is that they're in the business of making very early bets, right? Because they're, they're often, as at seed round, they're often not the very first money into a company because that often comes from angels or like, you know, informal networking stuff, but they're the first institutional money in. And that means that a lot of the time 
the companies and founders they're investing in don't have a lot of track record. You can't go out and ask questions like, what is your monthly, you know, your annual recurring revenue look like? Or, you know, let, let me talk to 10 big customers who are using your product. Um, because sometimes these companies are pre-product, like they don't even have their product built yet, or they've just built it and maybe they're just trying to find their first customers. Um, so they very specifically are in the business of trying to predict the future very early on when there are not a lot of signals from those companies. And actually the work that I do for them is I do a bunch of data gathering, both web scraping and pulling in different data sources um, through APIs, and then data modeling on things to help them find very early phase opportunities, founders. And we're often looking for founders who are still in, what, in stealth mode, meaning they haven't actually yet announced what business they're even working on. So a lot of that is about then trying to guess, you know, whether or not they're going to be working on something interesting to us based on their background. Um, but then also, you know, if they are working on something, in, so it's partly about like, are they in verticals that are interesting to us? And then also, do we believe that they can execute? Given their experience, do we believe they can execute on those things? The firm I work, so the, you know, you asked sort of like, what, what do I think the future looks like? Or what are people excited about? So the firm I work for is, they have several different verticals they focus on. They don't try to do everything because they're not big, they're too small for that. They like to focus where they have business expertise. And also, again, coming to back to this idea of networking, they like to invest in companies where they have a whole set of business contacts already so that they can help those companies then sell into customers, right? So there's very interesting business spaces that they just don't invest in. And it's not because they believe those business spaces are necessarily like a bad bet. It's that they don't have, they don't feel like they can help them. It's like, well, we can write a check, but we can't, we can't make the intros that you will need as a company. Like, why would you take money from us? You should take money from someone else who's has more, you know, experience and deep network in this place. They're, they, they've always been very into big data, machine learning, data science, sort of data-driven products and with, you know, and also kind of hard, like deep tech. So developer tools, right? So, so software and database things are going to be basically used by programmers at other companies. But they also make investments in, in what they call the future of work. So what, what, it, you know, what are tools that are going to be used in the workplace in the long term? So AI, right, AI is huge for them because it, it, it's sort of a culmination of a lot of things that have been in their wheelhouse for a while that are now like suddenly taking off. And they were not like two years ago, it was all about image recognition and generative AI in the visual imaging space. And, and, and you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, and they were less into that. Um, I think partly because they just didn't, they didn't see powerful use cases. Uh, well, I, I could also say the other thing is that they don't do, they don't invest in consumer products, like co companies that are selling to individual consumers. They only do B2B, business to business investing. So again, so there were a lot of like really generative AI, there were a lot of like really kind of cool consumer facing products you could imagine coming out of it, but there weren't as many, there were some, but there were fewer compelling use cases in the business to business space. LLMs are very different, right? The LLMs were kind of like puttering along, looking like they were behind what was happening with image-based AI. And it just, in the last year, there's been this explosion. It, it seems essentially, I mean, the progress has been, you know, has been continuous, but what, but it seems that language models have this sort of threshold effect that once you get to a certain scale of complexity and sophistication, even though it's a quantitative change, like now we have, you know, now it's a, it's a 30 billion parameter model instead of a two, bill, 2 billion parameter model. Like it's a quantitative change, but the experience of interacting with the tool feels like a qualitative change. Like it, 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 it we sort of cross the threshold and it feels transformative. I think that's a huge piece of the future of technology and of data science in particular. I don't think so, you know, cryptocurrency and Web3 uh, were not necessarily trends that I was super bullish about, partly because it was just hard to see where the super compelling use case was, right? Like, why do people really need this? And Whereas with AI, with this next generation of AI, I think it's, it is, it's going to take a while. There's, you know, right now there's this huge gold rush going on. There's going to be a ton of turmoil and chaos, but over time, the 
I think these AI tools are going to get built into everything that we use, right? Everything that's sort of technology focused that we use is going to have more and more of that happening. You've already seen this some with data science, right? So like when I joined, when I left astronomy and became a data scientist in like 2014, data science was still kind of new. And there was a whole like, is this just going to be a flash in the pan and no one will care again? And I always was bullish about data science because, you know, we've lived, I at least, maybe some of our listeners are younger, but I've lived through an era where everything went from being mostly analog to being digital, right? And by the time I was finishing college and becoming an adult, um, more like almost everything started happening on computers. But it was that was a relatively recent phenomenon as I became an adult. And what that did was it generated kind of as a byproduct of the computerization transition, it generated enormous quantities of data about everything, right? So now suddenly, so companies digitized everything and then now that everyone was sitting on these giant and, and exploding in size piles of data. But data is not information unless you can actually access it, tease out trends and do something with it, right? As the numbers become really large, it becomes overwhelming. So 2010s, data science was sort of coming into its own as company, as the world that had, had digitized started to realize that it had more data that it could handle and process in kind of, in, in, in kind of low technology ways. And so data science is the technology of then taking all of that data that's generated as a byproduct of the digitization of our society and turn it into information. And I think AI is basically the next step in that same kind of process, because as the data have become larger and larger, you know, it's sort of just, it's basically leveling up layers of abstraction, right? Because it becomes too difficult to, to engage at the microscopic level of things because there's just too much of it, right? So you sort of have to develop these more and more powerful tools that, and sort of certain basic functions become automated so that people are actually working at the next level up thinking about things. And then those things, so some of the things that data scientists were doing in the 2010s are now automated, right? And data science is, is sort of levels up to the next level. And now this is all gonna get automated, right? And so I think AI is part of that process of the sort of digitization and digital transformation of our society. So I am, I see it as, you know, certainly some of the, the shine will come off of it, right? As always happens in a gold rush. Just like data science, you know, data science was like the coolest job title, right, 10 years ago. And now it's kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's sort of like being a software engineer. Being a software engineer was like the coolest job title in the 90s, right? I still remember when my sister's dad showed up and knocked on the door and was like, yeah, you know, we're moving to Seattle because I've taken this job as a software engineer at a company called Microsoft. It was in like, you know, whatever, 1987 or something. I was like, what's a software engineer, right? You know, and... By the 90s, like that was the coolest job you could have, right? You know, so that kind of like, this is cool, this is sexy, this is new, that will fade and some of, you know, some attention will then swing to whatever the new trendy cool thing is. But I think that AI as part of this digitization process is actually going to be a long-term technology that, that winds up getting built in, in some, in some sexy ways and in some like really not very exciting or sexy ways. Like, so not all jobs are going to be like really cool, sexy jobs 10 years from now, but they will exist as jobs because it's going to be part of everything that we do. I will say, though, that I think that it's going to be a moving landscape in the sense of how technical you have to be to do it, right? So there are going to be job people who are building new AI models and training AI models are going to have to be very, very technical. And actually, I think it's going to quite quickly, if it hasn't already become something that's actually hard to get into, if you haven't done a degree specifically in computer science and AI, right? You, you know, if you have a, like the people who are building new foundational LLMs at big companies typically have PhDs in computer science and AI, right? So as an astronomer coming in from the side, I think it's going to be harder than it has been historically to get into those kinds of roles. The flip side of it is I think a huge amount of how people are going to interact with AI and use it is going to be um, doing what's what is currently referred to as prompt engineering, right? So people who are sort of technically savvy, quantitative, sophisticated users who are not building new foundational models, but they are fine tuning and tweaking and training and figuring out how to deal with, you know, a limited context window for um, existing language models. So there's going to be this kind of interim 
again, like up a higher level of abstraction kind of roles in terms of how people actually interact with and use AI models. We're all gonna have to be lifelong learners, right? Because whatever job we're doing now is not gonna exist in 10 years. I think something though, that, that kind of brings me to something that I often say when I'm talking to people about why astronomers make, I think make very good data scientists and very good. And I think we'll continue to be, have really good skill sets for working in this kind of technical analytics and product sort of productization of information type roles, which is that we're taught to do order of magnitude thinking. And we're taught to try to make, so part of that is about making kind of estimates of what's gonna work, but also, I think part of it is also thinking about where it's worth putting time and attention, right? So for instance, if you've ever even like taken a class about instrumentation or designing an instrument, right? You start thinking about a system, you have many different sources of noise and error that enter your system. And they're all, you know, they all matter, but they add in quadrature. And what that means is you're totally dominated by whatever is your biggest source of noise. And so if you spend any time at all working on some, uh, like trying to optimize some other part of the system, you are wasting your time because you're totally swamped by this thing here. And I actually think that astronomers kind of like are like, yeah, of course, right? It's a very intuitive way to think about things, but you, you get out into the technical world. A lot of technically educated people and like computer science people will obsess over solving detailed problems that fundamentally don't matter. They don't impact the product. And something I actually think that astronomers are very good at is keeping that big picture in perspective and thinking through what's actually holding us back. Where, not just how do I solve this specific problem, but where in the problem landscape is our time and attention best spent? And how do we optimize what we're doing to focus on the things that actually matter? And I think, you know, as the technology is gonna change, the detailed skills are gonna change, but that kind of big picture thinking about what's the biggest, what's the biggest uncertainty in this problem? Or what's holding us back from solving this problem and how do we address it? And I'm not gonna worry about getting it accurate to, you know, 10% because no one cares. What we need is like, if I can get it within a factor of two, like that's, that's the first stage, right? And we all do that almost instinctively by the time we've, you know, been trained as astronomers. But that's actually, because technical people often are very detail oriented, a lot of technical people don't think that way. And I think that's a sort of ex-astronomer superpower that we have. Great. Well, you mentioned earlier about having work-life balance. Could you share a little bit about how you were able to discover that balance in your life and, and how other people could learn from that? Yeah. So I sort of had it thrust upon me when COVID broke out because I had been, I mean, so my husband and I both are technical people and work in tech. And we have traded off in our lives who is the sort of primary breadwinner versus who is doing other projects or being primary parent um, because we have a son who is now 11. Um, so we've had a, a, some back and forth and that sort of helps with the balance, right? Because we both had some flexibility there. And what happened in COVID was that when COVID broke out, I was running a consulting firm. I was working at least full-time, you know, like super intense. And my husband had recently been laid off and was looking for a job. And my, my first thought was like, oh my God, he's not going to get a job and everyone's going to fire their consultants and we're going to have no cash flow. Um, but that didn't happen. Um, my clients, none of my clients disappeared. So I was still like full, you know, fully booked, sort of scrambling. And then my husband got a job as a manager at Apple. And so he suddenly was just unavailable, zero flexibility for any of that. And the schools were closed. So we had this kid who was home and at the time he was seven. Right. So he, there's no way he was going to manage his own remote learning without intervention. And it very quickly became kind of a disaster and because we unfortunately still live in a society where it's, it's sort of set up for kids to have at least one parent who is home at least some of the time or flexible at least some of the time. It's very, it is possible, but it is very challenging to have young children and have two full-time working parents who have no schedule flexibility. It's it, like, you can do it, but it's it's limiting in a lot of ways that are were disappointing for me to discover as kind of a child of the you know end of the 20th century, sort of thinking we were past that, but there are ways in which we aren't. And what wound up being a huge benefit of being a consultant was that I did have a lot of flexibility. 
And I just, I basically stopped doing new business development. So I allowed projects to finish up. I kind of wrapped them up and I was able to then without actually quitting or leaving anyone in the lurch, I was able to kind of wind down, wind, scale back the work that I was doing to the level of my choosing and free myself up to be available to organize and run a homeschooling pod. And, you know, even once the schools opened again, which was over a year here in California to, you know, be available to help get my son settled at a new school and find, find activities that he was part of. And it also gave me a chance to participate more in my local community, which is the thing that I never really invested in when I was a full-time astronomer or a full-time tech worker. I was like very, very focused on my career and my work and my work world. And in COVID, as the sort of formal social network, it was like social uh, fabric, just completely shredded almost instantaneously. Uh, it made me really appreciate and value how important our communities are. And the, you know, it made me think very clearly about who, oh, who are the people I know who I actually can rely on when I need something, you know, who I can call up and be like, I have to do this thing tomorrow. Can you take my kid? You know, who were, you know, like somebody's sick, you know, somebody, can somebody make you food? Right, these kind of very basic community things that I think we sometimes in, in our sort of career-oriented worlds, we like I certainly had sort of stopped thinking about or valuing and didn't realize how important it was until until I was uh, we were all sort of thrown back onto our local communities for support in a very tenuous way and nothing worked. So I now, you know, as I said, like I'm now working part-time. It's not what I want to do for the next 20 years of my life. I, at some point, do want to kind of ramp up and get, you know, be a full-time career person. But I'm loving the time that I have with my son and the closeness that we've built. You know, he's, he's, he's 11 now, right? So he's going to turn into a teenager sometime in the not, not too distant future. So this time is really special time. And my husband is working, you know, a super stressful job. And he doesn't, he doesn't want to do it for 20 years, you know? So our plan is that within, you know, within two or three years, we're going to, you know, we're going to hand off the baton and he'll be some, he'll get to scale back and have more free time and be more involved as a parent and have more flexibility. And I will get the benefit of getting to ramp my career back up and having that like, you know, more intense, more exciting, more engaged work. Whereas right now I have work that is like, you know, is very kind of like I work to live kind of work and I enjoy it and some of the work is interesting but something that's nice about can be nice about the private sector is I think that people have people go through many phases in their careers and that's pretty normal now and so the uh, flexibility to dial up when you want to go like all in and be super intense and work 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 you can definitely do that but if you also want to find a way to be working as a data scientist where you're either not working full-time or you're working really flexibly I think that exists as well. And it, you don't have to, whatever choice you make now, you don't have to do that for 30 years, which I think is different in academia. I think there's, I think it's very hard to dial down and dial back up again. And I think that could be a real benefit. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Astronomers Turn Data Scientist podcast. Please subscribe to our channels to find out when we release our future episodes. And thanks, Genevieve, for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Yes.